Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning. I am Ken Chappelle, and I am going to read John uh, 5, 31 through 47. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But I have a greater testimony than John because of the words that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing, testifying about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God without you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you have accepted glory from the one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to your, the Father, your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe in my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kenny. Lumberjack. If you could get your Bibles and turn to John 5. Uh, guys, we're going to be wrapping up chapter 5 this week, uh, which means we've been 24 weeks through five chapters in the Gospel of John together, and we're going to continue on in the Gospel of John. So have your Bibles open, and I hope you have your notebooks or your notes ready, because we've got a lot to cover today. I want to real quick just mention the potluck that we had last week. Uh, I went home and I had to unbuckle one of my belt loops and had to take a nap. I know several of you did as well. It was a great time, uh, just a really good fellowship together. So I'm grateful for that. We'll be having another one in November, so look out for that. Uh, we'll also be having a, a meal today um, after the message. It's going to be the Lord's Supper. I know some of you came in here before the bread was back there, so if you don't have the elements yet, I would just go ahead and say now should be a good time uh, for you to go get the bread and the drink if you didn't grab them on your way in so we can observe the Lord's Supper together. One other quick note. I've been working on kind of looking at the history of the life of this church, and one of the things that I discovered was that this very year, in fact, I think it's almost this precise week, that this church was born 85 years ago. Yeah. And 
praise God. I mean, I've only been here two years <laughs> of those 85, and there's been a lot of laborers along the way. Many of you have been here along the way, 85 years of ministry. And, and next month, we're gonna, or this month, actually, we're going to be working with several individuals, many people who want to join in membership in the life of this church. So praise God for that. Let me recall for you a little bit some of our context that, uh, the, to the text that Kenny so graciously read to us this morning. Um, so last week we talked about Jesus' response, but there's a little bit more context to that. So in the beginning of John 5, Jesus finds this man who's using this pool to try to heal him, but it doesn't work, and so Jesus offers him healing. He heals him, and the man gets up and walks, and the Jewish leaders, as dull as they are, totally miss the miracle and, and, and are mad about the fact that this guy is carrying his mat and in doing so breaking the Sabbath law. And they want to know who told him to do it, and they find out it's Jesus, and so they get really mad at Jesus. They start hating him because he told this guy to break the Sabbath law. But then it gets even more interesting. Jesus said, like, my dad doesn't stop working on the Sabbath, neither do I. I will continue to work, right? Because his dad's the father, and he, again, he holds everything in the universe together. If he were to stop working on the Sabbath, the whole world, the universe, would fall apart, right? So we need him to keep working. Praise the Lord, he does. Now, the Jews at that point want to kill Jesus. They say, you're making yourself equal to God when you say that. And, and, and so Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't correct. He doesn't turn into the Irish Canadian and try to be polite and everything. He, um, he, instead, he actually doubles down and confirms exactly what he means when he says, this is my relationship to the Father. And so last week, we, t- we kind of distilled verses 19 to 30 down into three main claims that Jesus is making in his defense to the Jewish leaders, and they were this. One, that I imitate the Father, right? So he said, I, I do nothing of my own. I only do what I see the Father doing. And the Father delights to show me. He loves me, and he delights to show me what he's doing. I imitate the Father. The second thing that Jesus said last week in, his te- in our text was, was that Jesus gives life, right? Jesus gives life. I have life in and of myself, and I can give life to whomever I choose, right? And that was something that only God could do in Jewish mind. And then the third thing Jesus said last week that we looked at was that Jesus makes judgment, right? That he has been given judgment to make over all of creation, that everyone will stand in judgment before Christ. And that's, again, something only God does in Jewish thought. And so what we see is that Jesus isn't like correcting, he's actually explaining, yeah, when you say I'm equal to God, You're right, and here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. So the only conclusion that we can come away from last week is that Jesus, at most, is claiming that he is equal to God, that he is on the same level of the Father. So you can accept it or you can reject it. There's no middle ground, right? There's there's no middle ground. You can't just simply go the middle ground and say, oh, Jesus was a wise and good teacher. He was a really good guy. You can't do that, right? The, the claims that Jesus made that we looked at last week are so wild, so outrageous, so scandalous that you can only do really one of three things. That Remember C.S. Lewis, quote, the trilemma, right? He's either a liar from the pit of hell, he's a lunatic on the same level of a guy who thinks he's a poached egg, or he's Lord, right? He's a liar, lunatic, or Lord, and you can't put him outside of that context because of his claims, 
So he makes these claims, these outrageous, scandalous claims about his relationship with the Father that we looked at last week. And now this week, the question that's on the table is, why on earth would we ever believe such claims? Why would we? Why should we believe Jesus when he says those things? What evidence is there that gives credibility to what Jesus is saying here? And so, if you can picture yourself moving from Jesus behind a pulpit to where now Jesus is standing in a courtroom and he's on trial. How many of you have ever been on trial in a courtroom before? Ah, gotcha. <laughs> just kidding. You, you just admitted you were, anyways. I, I honestly just, I haven't been in court um, not because I'm a goody two-shoes, I don't know, anyways, so I, I, the only reason why I know what happens in courtrooms is from movies like A Few Good Men, uh, and what people tell me about what happens in courtroom, and, and so basically what I know is that there's an individual who's standing on trial as a defendant, and there's a prosecution who comes in, and, and, and each one of them is making their assertions as to what's true. Really, that's all that courts try to get at, ultimately, is what is the truth? What's at the bottom of this? And so each side makes their claims about truth. And what they might present is evidence, right? And, 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 and what they also might present is what, um, let me actually, who is it that gets called to the stand and to share about what they say is true? What, they're called? Witnesses, Witnesses right? And witnesses provide what? Testimony. They provide testimony. They testify to the truth. And so as the jury and the audience hears the testimony of the key witnesses on the stand, they start realizing what the truth is. They start getting after what reality really is. And it turns out the more testimony that seems to be offered on one side or the other, the more truth can be confirmed in this. And so when you're thinking about courtroom cases, uh, the more testimony, the better, typically, right? And, and the Jews thought the same. The Jews in this day had the same understanding about major court cases. Uh, in fact, if there was only one person who could testify to what happened, that wasn't admissible. They required, in major court cases, at least two or three witnesses to testify. And so that's why you saw what Jesus said at verse 31. If you can just real quick say that. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, just to be clear, that's not the real case. He's just acknowledging what the Jews believe about an individual saying things about himself. Of course, I can speak and can speak truly, right? And I don't need a witness to kind of tell me what's true or not true. Like, like I could do that. Jesus does that here, but but what he's saying here is that you won't accept my testimony. I realize that unless I have more than one witness. And so the text today, Jesus calls to the stand six different witnesses that will testify and bear truth about exactly who Jesus is. Six different key witnesses he calls to the stand. Now, I was reading a commentary on this text that's written by a former lawyer, and the lawyer was impressed by the way Jesus handled this trial because he said that Jesus was closing down the doubt before the actual argument even began. <laughs> he just like, hey, here's the truth, here's the evidence, you can't doubt it. It's just too overwhelming, right? 
So the before the Jews can even kind of respond or even give their testimony or provide their witnesses to the stand, Jesus calls his witnesses to the stand, and he confirms his own claims. And, and let me go ahead and give you what the six key witnesses are that Jesus mentions. And, and we're going to find that outlining our sermon, the message today. Six key witnesses that Jesus brings up that testify to Jesus. The first is the Holy Spirit. And I'll explain where that comes from in just a second. The Holy Spirit. Second, it's John the Baptizer. I'll refer to him henceforth as Johnny B. Thirdly, Jesus' works. Fourth, the Father. And fifth, the Scriptures. And then the sixth key witness is Moses. Now I'm going to give you those again as we go along. So if you miss some, don't fear. So before we even start getting to hear the testimonies of these six key witnesses, there's something that I think we need to have in our hearts at the outset of this. Some things that Jesus says in here. Because I think we need to be careful how we think about what's happening here. And Jesus says two things that you may have heard and be like, what? What is he saying, right? And the way that he says it, look at verse 34. Verse 34, I don't receive human testimony. And then jump down to verse 41. I do not accept glory from people. I don't receive human testimony and I don't accept glory from people. In other words... Jesus doesn't require humanity to validate his deity, right? He, he, he is God, co-eternal with the Father, pre-existent before all of creation. His, his, he, he's never been dependent upon the belief of his people to validate his, his existence and his nature, He's God. Like, our belief in Him does not increase His divinity, nor does our doubt diminish it. Do you get that? Right? And and then He goes on to say, I don't accept glory from people. In other words, our praise doesn't make God more glorious. Our praise and worship to God doesn't increase his, His magnificence. It doesn't enrich his glory, nor does our silence reduce it. Guys, we already saying that his glory is already existing in all of creation, and it's constant in the halls of eternity, so he does not require praise from his people. So, like, the one way that I can illustrate this, and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that there might be some kids in here if I were to talk about a certain uh, uh, bearded individual that that might be taken the wrong way. So I'll, I'll, I'll avoid that illustration. I'll talk about Greek mythology, right? Greek mythology, how many of you have ever seen Clash of the Titans, the movie that came out a few years ago, right? And, and it, it kind of depicts a little bit about Greek mythology. Greek gods would increase in their power and influence as belief rose in them. The more people who believed in them, the greater their power was. But as their power, as their belief in them waned, their power was drained. Right? So Jesus here isn't like a, a particular holiday individual or a, a Greek mythology god. Right? No, he doesn't lose power as people stop believing in him. 
So regardless if your family member keeps rebutting everything that you say about Jesus, regardless if your friends doubt Jesus, if, if your coworkers flat out reject and are skeptical of Jesus, Jesus still stands. Unscathed, untouched, because he is an objective, eternal reality. So what he's about to do, he doesn't do for his own sake. He doesn't do it for himself. He doesn't require our testimony or our praise in order to be who he is. No, but he does what he does next in this text, in verse 31 through 47. He does it for our sake. And I'll show you why at the end. But for our sake, he calls six key witnesses to the stand. So let's start walking through this text a little bit more in depth. In verse 32, let's start there. It says this, There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. Now, from the outset, I'll just say that some commentators just aren't exactly sure who he's referring to here. Some say that he's he's referring to the Father. Uh, I see the Father listed later, and you'll see him listed later. So what I actually believe is I believe that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Can you say the Holy Spirit? Awesome. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the triune Godhead. We have the Father, Son, and Spirit. One existence, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each one of them testify to one another. The Father testifies to the Son and the Spirit. The Son testifies to the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit testifies to the Father and the Son. Try saying that on your own. My goodness, I got it right. Wow. There has already been a moment in Jesus' life where the Holy Spirit has done this. And it's a moment that's not recorded as an event in the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist talks about it. It's recorded in other Gospels. And that event is when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptizer. So if you can recall some of the context, Jesus' baptism, you can find it in Matthew 3, you can find it in Mark chapter 1, you can find it in Luke 3. Jesus comes to John to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, and Jesus gets dumped. He comes out of the water, and what happens? The sky rips apart. The heavens open, and the Holy Spirit comes like a dove and rests on Jesus. And you remember what Johnny B. said that that meant? We've already looked at it in John 1. I can bring it up on the screen for you. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on Jesus. I didn't know Jesus, but the Father who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is testifying here to the identity of Jesus, to the relationship of Jesus with the Father. And not only is this a past event of the testimony of the Spirit, but there's something that's coming that Jesus even talks about later on in John 15. Look at this, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, the one, who, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, what's he going to do? What does it say? The Spirit will testify about me. The Spirit will testify about me. So you and I, as 
Christ followers, having been reborn, remade, regenerated, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And you know what one of the key things he does? He keeps testifying again and again and again to the person, work, and nature of our Savior. Over and over. Anytime that you find joy in the person of Jesus is because it's the Holy Spirit said, hey, here's my Jesus. Here's the Son. Now, this is a a quick side note. This is why the unforgivable sin in Scripture that Jesus says is blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, some of you may not know what this is talking about. The context, Jesus says that every sin on earth can be forgiven except one, and that one is the blasphemy of the Spirit. And blasphemy seems like an old word, but really the gist of it is you call the Holy Spirit a liar. You say what he says isn't true. And here we find out that the Holy Spirit is testifying to Jesus again and again and again. And the more you say, nope, Spirit, you're wrong. Nope, Spirit, you're lying to me. That is unforgivable. In other words, disbelief is the unforgivable sin. Disbelief in the Son So that's why we as believers believe the testimony, the witnessing of the Spirit of God because the Spirit is saying that Jesus is the Son of God sent by the Father to take our place under the wrath and set us free from sin, Satan, and death. So we first key witness, if you didn't circle that, I would circle it. It's the Holy Spirit. Even though it doesn't say Holy Spirit, right out to the side, Holy Spirit. The second key witness that Jesus brings up to the stand is Johnny B., John the Baptizer. You want to say Johnny B. or John the Baptizer? Which one do you call him? Let's say Johnny B. together. One, two, three. Johnny B., right? Verse 33. Take a look. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So guys, Jesus reminds the Jewish leaders that they had like listened to what John the Baptist was saying, and that they even agreed with some of the things. They delighted in what he was saying for a little bit. If you can remember back in the beginning of the Gospel of John, the Jewish leaders sent a group, a delegation to John the baptizer to kind of figure out who this Johnny B guy really is. And and Johnny B testifies to the person of Jesus there. He testifies to him. Look at what he says about, about Jesus in that. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And then look at the end of verse 34. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is at Jesus' baptism, to be more precise, the day after the delegation came out to see John. And one of the things that we see here is that Jesus was saying that this John guy burned like a lamp, and he gave light like a lamp which means he wasn't the light, but he was derivative of the light. But Johnny B. gave a good, solid testimony to the nature and the identity of Jesus. So we've already got two good key witnesses on the stand, but the the evidence just doesn't stop there. Look at what Jesus does next. He calls 
His works to the stand. Can you say Jesus' works? works. Look at verse 36. Verse 36. But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. I'd circle these very works if you have that in your Bible. Now when we say Jesus' works, we're talking about uh, what John in the Gospel of John refers to as the signs, right? And, and I mentioned last week that, the, that John records seven main signs in his Gospel. We saw that Jesus turned water into wine in John 2. We saw that Jesus healed the royal official's son in John 4. In John 5, Jesus heals the lame man by the pool. In, in John chapter 6, which is going to be next week's sermon, Jesus takes a Lunchable and feeds 5,000. We see in John 6, later on, right after that, Jesus goes skiing on water without a boat or without skis. He walks on water. In John 9, we see that he heals a man that has been born blind. And then the seventh sign is that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, we know that that's not all Jesus did, right? We, we know that Jesus did many more miracles, and they're recorded in the other three Gospels. So, like, Jesus almost sank a fishing boat because he filled the nets with a, a, a crazy load of fish, which would be every fisherman's dream except the sinking boat part, right? He calmed a raging storm after waking up from a nap in it, right? He, he cast out legions of demons. He healed the sick and the diseased and the mute. He raised many more people from the dead, including a little girl named Talitha. I love that story. You see, what's crazy is Scripture testifies to all these miraculous works of Jesus And so does every other ancient work. Guys, even the enemies of Jesus, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, acknowledged that Jesus did these miraculous works. And it's not just written in the gospel, it's written in ancient literature as well. So there's a guy uh, named Flavius Josephus, you can call him Flava Flav. He's a Jewish historian that was born in Jerusalem about four years after Jesus' crucifixion. And one of the things the Roman Empire needed to do was get to understand the Jews a little bit better. And so Flavius Josephus started writing the history of the Jews uh, for the Roman Empire. And in one of his books, Antiquities of the Jews, in book 18, chapter 3, this is what he said. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works. Guys, so Josephus was writing in the Greek because, again, he was writing for the uh, Romans to help understand the Judaism and understand Jewish culture. And can you see how he says wonderful works? That Greek word for wonderful is paradoxon, closest to our English word paradoxical. And it means amazing and unusual and strange. Strange works, amazing, wonderful, unusual works. So guys, if you were to take a look at all the ancient literature around Jesus in, written in that time, nobody questioned whether or not he did these mir- miraculous things. Nobody was questioning that. The question was, where on earth did the power come from? Was it from below or was it from above? 
Was it from God the Father or was it from Satan? And we know what they attributed it to. Who did they attribute it to? Satan, right? The Jewish leaders said, this is of Beelzebub. They called it sorcery. They called it magic. But what do we as Christians say where it came from? Where did it come from? It came from God, the Father. And the chief climactic work that the Father gave to the Son to accomplish is the work of redemption achieved on the cross in substitutionary atonement in taking our place and atoning for our sin and absorbing the wrath of God, the chief work of that coupled with the resurrection that he no longer is bound in an empty tomb, but he stands alive today. Those chief works of Jesus and the point of all of them The point of all that Jesus did miraculously and wonderfully was to testify to the identity of Jesus so that people would believe in him. Guys, that's why John wrote this gospel and why he included the signs that he did. If you look at John 20, 30-31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may what? Believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life in His name. Guys, it was to His own disciples that Jesus said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you don't believe that otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So guys, in a court case, if this is a court trial... Jesus' works are one of the key witnesses that you call to the stand. Jesus' works will greatly testify to his identity as God. Then we have a fourth key witness that's mentioned, and the fourth is the Father. Can we say the Father? The Father. Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. Circle the Father there if you can. Guys, there are multiple times throughout the Old Testament that the Father witnesses to the nature and person of the Christ that's coming. And we'll talk about that next as our next witness gets on the stand. But even in Jesus' life alone, there's already been times and will be times in his life where the Father testifies to the nature of the Son. Remember the baptism, right? Jesus goes and gets baptized. The sky rips open. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then look at what happens in Mark chapter 1. Verse 11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I think our heavenly father is powerfully testifying to Jesus' identity here in a very powerful way. But there's not just this occurrence where the Father testifies to the nature of the Son. There's another. It's not recorded in the Gospel of John. It's in like Matthew 17 and a few of the other Gospels. It's the Mount of Transfiguration. If you can remember, Jesus brings Peter, James, and John on top of a high mountain. And when he gets to the top, Jesus is transfigured. He's supernaturally transformed into all glory. And what happens is Peter and James and John see two other guys. And it's actually Elijah and Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. And, and, uh, and they're glad they're there. The disciples say, let's make a tent. And in Matthew 17, 5, this is what happens. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. 
And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I don't know about you, but I think this father delights to testify to the son. I think this father loves to glorify his son and to testify to his identity so that he might receive honor. Then we get to the fifth witness. The fifth witness is the scriptures. Can you say that with me? The scriptures. Verse 39. Verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. So circle the scriptures there. Guys, of all the people in ancient Jewish history, it was the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of the day, who were the most diligent at studying the scriptures. They devoted their lives to it. And not only that, but there was this commonly held belief by the Jews that the more you diligently studied the Scriptures, the more you gained eternal life afterwards. That your final acceptance before God was based on how much you diligently studied the book. But here's Jesus, and He's saying, no, 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 there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about diligently studying the scriptures if you fail to miss, or sorry, if you fail to believe what they're all about. There's nothing inherently life-giving in just memorizing and meditating or studying this if you fail to see what they're pointing to, what it's all about. So like the scriptures join with John the Baptist. John the Baptist would say, may he increase, may I decrease. We as Christians say, may Jesus increase, may I decrease. The same way the scriptures are saying, it's all about Christ. They're not pointing to themselves, they're pointing to Jesus. Guys, this book isn't about itself. This book is all about God. And the whole Old Testament is just riddled with so many different images and stories and events and prophecies that all point to Jesus. So like in the Gospel of Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, there's two disciples after Jesus' resurrection and they're walking on the road to Emmaus and this stranger comes up. The stranger is Jesus, they just don't recognize him. And as they're disputing, Jesus says, what are y'all arguing about what are you disputing about and and these disciples proceed to tell Jesus about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth right and he about his teachings about his miracles about his crucifixion about his resurrection and 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 Jesus is like well yeah what's so hard to believe about that and then look at what Jesus does next in Luke 24 27 then beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. I don't know about you, I would have loved to have been on that road with Jesus. Sitting there and he's saying, look, you see right here? Yeah, I'm, I'm the better Adam. I'm the one who can keep God's commands and bring life instead of death. He, oh, and you see here, look, and I am the ark that, that saves people through the judgment of the flood. Come in and hide in me. And oh, and I am the ram that was caught in the thicket that took the place of Isaac on the altar. Oh, and I am here, I'm the Passover lamb that if you shed my blood and put it on your doorpost, you will be saved from death. Oh, and here, I'm the better Moses because I set people 
free from slavery to sin and death. Oh, and here, yeah, here, I'm the bronze serpent. There you lift up and you're poisoned by sin. You look at me in faith, you will be healed. Oh, and look here, I'm the better Joshua. I'm the better Joshua who leads all people into the true promised land. Oh, and look here, I'm the scapegoat. I'm the one that if you put my guilt on me, I will take away all the guilt and shame from you. Oh, and look over here, yeah, here, I'm the city of refuge. If you run to me and hide in me, you will be safe. Oh, and most of all, here, I am the better David. I am the better ruler. I am the better king. And I slay the Goliath of Satan's sin and death once and for all. And I rule in righteousness. And those are just images. We're not even talking about prophecies yet. Look at the, I mean, if you, if you want to do something interesting, take some time to look at the prophecies. Scholars say there are about 347 different Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. 347. Some of those include like the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. Some of them say that he would, that Herod would, the ruler would kill children when the, when the, the Messiah was born. Others say that, that the, the ministry of the Messiah would start in Galilee. Uh, one of them says that the, the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Another one says that the Messiah was going to be forsaken by all his disciples, that the Messiah was going to be crucified. He was going to be well acquainted with sorrows and grief, and that he was going to be risen from the dead, not left in the grave. And guys, you got to remember that all of these prophecies, all of these books were written by different authors over centuries. And the probability of one individual being able to fulfill just eight of those prophecies is one to the power, uh, sorry, one out of 10 to the power of 17 zeros following. That's not even, that's more than uh, a trillion. I don't know what comes after a trillion, right? Uh, One out of 10 to the 17th power. The probability of one single individual fulfilling all 347 prophecies about the Messiah is unquantifiable. You can't even write the number of zeros on a screen or a page. The probability is so low. And, and, and so the way to, that some scholars try to illustrate it is that it's more likely for a tornado to run through a, a trailer home park and the result of that being a flyable working Boeing 747 with all the gizmos and gadgets in place. Now, if you hear that and you're like Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber and you say, so you're telling me there's a chance? I don't think you understand probability well. There's no chance. That's qualified as impossible. And yet here we see Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Every part of Scripture, whether it's prophecy, whether it's images or events, all the Scriptures point to Christ. They testify to our Jesus. And they testify to His ministry, to His teaching, to His death, to His resurrection. The Scriptures are a key witness to Jesus. And then finally, we get to our last key witness, and his name is Moses. Can you say Moses? Well done. That's the easiest one. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote... How will you believe my words? Guys, Moses was their guy. Moses was their dude. 
Like They set their hope on Moses. He was the great prophet of old, right? Moses was the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, as it might be referred to as. Now, what Jesus is claiming is that Moses wrote about Jesus, wrote about the Christ. And, and, and you might be able to get away with saying that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 is a reference to this. This is what it says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Sounds familiar, but I don't think Jesus is simply referring to a single passage here. I think he's referring to the way we read Moses. I think he's referring to the way that they were reading the prophet of old. You see, these religious leaders took every command of the law, all the do's and all the don'ts, and saw them as an end in and of themselves. That they were the end in and of themselves. So keep every dot and tittle of the law, and you'll have life. But guys, one of the things that we find out in Jesus' ministry and in the apostles' teachings later was that the ultimate goal of God in giving the law wasn't that we would be able to keep the law in perfection. I mean, think about it. With all the sacrifices that were required every day just to atone for our daily sins and all the sacrifices that were required every year to atone for the sin of the whole nation and the consistent failure of the people of God to actually keep the law and keep all the commands, guys, the law was ultimately designed to show our inability to keep it. It was ultimately designed to show us that the standard of righteousness required to be acceptable to God, to be in His presence for eternity, was impossible to reach in and of ourselves. Romans 3 says that Moses' law was given to help us to know what sin is to help us to see that we've greatly missed the mark and that we desperately need someone who won't miss. And we find that it's Jesus. In fact, that's what Philip testified to Nathaniel when he tried to invite him. He said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, Jesus of Nazareth. So like if people read through the books of Moses and they're reading through those five books and they don't see that it's pointing to the Messiah, Moses himself is said to stand up in outrage and accuse, you guys have missed it. I was pointing to the Messiah. Not me, him. Not me, him. There's one coming. There's one coming after me. There's one who will come. So guys, those are the six key witnesses that testify to the claims of Jesus, that he is one with the Father, and he is the Son. The six key witnesses, if you didn't get them down, it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. We have Johnny B. He preached about who Jesus is. We have the works of Jesus. They displayed his nature and deity. The Father, he attested to the sonship of Jesus. We have the scriptures that revealed the nature and person of Jesus. And then we have Moses, who's constantly pointing to Jesus. So six key witnesses. 
And, and friends, I, I want to encourage you, get to know these witnesses really well. Get to know them really well. The Holy Spirit, get to know Him really well. Johnny B., get to know Him really well. The works, the Father, the Scriptures, Moses. Know them really well. Study them really well. Talk about them because these are key witnesses when we talk about just how reasonable our faith as Christians really is. That we're not just some outlandish people believing in myths and fairy tales, but that our faith is more reasonable than life itself. So when we testify to Jesus, we bring these witnesses with us. Now, I, I realize the time, and, and there's another part of this text that I haven't gone through yet. Um, and, and it's actually the elephant in the room. Um, and so I just want to touch on them for just a second. Did you notice that Jesus says some really hard things here? Did you notice what he said? In verse 37, he tells the Jews, you haven't heard his voice. You haven't seen his frame. In verse 38, he says to these Jewish leaders who have diligently studied the Bible, he said, you don't have God's word residing in you. In, In verse 40, he says, you're not willing to come to me. In verse 42, he says, you have no love for God in you. In verse 43, he says, you won't accept me. You'll accept other people as the Messiah, and you'll receive glory from them, but you won't from me. And then verse 47, you don't believe what Moses wrote. Guys, I, I, um, I'd say that those are pretty hard sayings, and, and one of the things I'd want to caution us as a people of God is to realize that Jesus truly knows the condition of the heart of every person he's talking to here. Because he's God. He sees through them. You and I don't have that ability. So just because Jesus said things like this doesn't mean that we can just go up to some stranger on the street and try to witness to them this way. It's not the easiest thing to do. It's not the necessarily the nicest thing to do. Um, like, like let's, let's try to be a bit more careful and nuanced in our words because we don't know the hearts of man like Jesus does. But why would Jesus say such hard things? Why on earth would he say such harsh things to these Jewish leaders? Well, I think, and I, I think you would agree, that it's, it's in the hardest times where we need the hardest truths to reveal our deepest needs. So it's usually like in the prison cell, after being arrested for an altercation where you realize that you, you need some change. It's, it's in the hospital room after you lose someone that you so desperately love. It's there that you realize your desperate need for change in your life. Or, or after a car accident where you barely escape with your life, it's there where you realize where you need change. It's in the hardest truths of life that point to our deepest needs. So Jesus is saying some of the hardest truths because he's intending to bring out and expose their deepest needs. And you know what they are? Look at verse 34. I've said these things so that you may be saved. Verse 40. You will not come to me, but if you come to me so that you may have life. As I don't know about you, but I think one of the scariest things that I could ever imagine is thinking that I'm saved, thinking that I'm right with God when I'm not. 
These Jews thought they were right with God, but they weren't. Jesus is saying here, you are right with God. You are saved from sin. You are raised to eternal life, not because you've memorized the whole book of Leviticus and not because you're able to follow 90% of the commands that God has given. No, you are saved and you receive life because you believe the testimony of the key witnesses. You believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, come to die in our place and to raise us to new life. And so uh, the exhortation from last week is the same one for this week. The whole point of this text, the evidence is insurmountable. Believe in Jesus alone. He is the Son of God. Believe in him and you will be saved. You will be given eternal life and knowing God now that will last for the rest of eternity. Believe. And as you believe, bear testimony to Jesus. We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.